Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. It has been a great week. We had a good week in Jesus. God moved and a lot of people were touched, a lot of baptisms, healings, deliverances. I, uh, someone brought me a, a testimony this morning. I believe it was Holly. Is Holly here this morning? Wave at me if you're here. Yeah, way back in the back, uh, I don't remember, I want to say it was Joe, just, you know, had a word of knowledge, said, hey, your, your rotocuff is being healed. I heard it was healed. Hallelujah, look at that arm. Hallelujah. Completely healed. Thank you, Jesus. So a lot of great healings, and it was a good week, and, and uh, so, you know, we, we, uh, we bring in different kinds of people, different, different uh, emphases, different gifts, and uh, at times there's going to be people we bring in that may be a different feel than you've had before. Maybe there, there may be even different ways they do things, but we want to honor what's in the body of Christ and receive, and so uh, if you had any questions about anything that went on, hey, grab me. And we'll, uh, we'll just, I want to pastor that. So uh, that is good. All right. See, look at that, man. They're, they're already, they're already going into conviction, crying, <laughs> having to carry them out. Hallelujah. Okay. Let's get into the word this morning. Uh, I want to talk about something I touched on Thursday night. Well, he's really under conviction. I, I want to talk about something I talked about Thursday night. I touched on at the end of the service and I made a couple of statements that I want, I want to clarify. Like I said, I want to pastor those things. Uh, there, it's one thing in a move of the Spirit, you say things for the moment. And those things are important. But we also want to lay down foundations, lenses through which we read things and, and bring clarification to things. And so uh, that's what I want to do this morning. I want to talk about the balance of God's character. Uh, this is something the Lord spoke to me I bet it was, it was going on 30 years ago uh, or more. Uh, it was, matter of fact, my wife and I were living in our little, little apartment. Uh, so this was many, many years ago. Uh, so uh, the Lord, Lord began to speak to me about this, and it's really a foundational teaching that I haven't done in some time. Uh, I've touched on this, and I'll mention certain things of this, but I really want to build a foundation this morning on the balance of God's character and the necessity of seeing the different sides of God's nature. Because if we only see one side of God's nature, we end up in imbalance. And we can actually end up in, a, in an unhealthy place. And so uh, I'm going to unpack that this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, I ask that you'd anoint the teaching of your word. Lord, that you would instruct us. Father, we thank you that you're a good father. And you father us well. And so, Lord, I'm asking that you would father us this morning through the teaching of your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, there's, there's teaching and there's preaching. They say that teaching is telling and preaching is yelling. Uh, I'm going to, uh, or ex explaining and proclaiming, and uh, I'm going to do more telling than yelling this morning. Uh, there's, there, is, there are two sides of God's character. Now, there's many facets to God's nature, to God's character, and one of the ways in which God causes us to grow, one of the ways in which he grows us up as individuals, but also corporately, one of the ways in which he pushes us in various directions in our walk with him is through fresh revelations of facets of his character. You know, like a diamond, a, a stone of great value, you never see the whole 
diamond by looking at it from one angle. And the same is true of God. There have been many great men and women of God down through history who have written books on the nature and character of God. And they dissect the character of God by looking at different facets. We don't relate with God, so to speak, through those, uh, you know, by, by just narrowing down, but we fill out our theology. One of my favorite authors is a guy named, in this book he has W.A. Prattney, it sounds more scholarly, but the name by which he goes is Winky Prattney. How many of you are familiar with Winky Prattney? I love, I love me some Winky. He, uh, he's in his, I, I want to, he's in his late seventies now and not really traveling. Uh, he was a New Zealand, uh, a guy started in New Zealand as a chemist and, uh, got touched by the power of God in high school and became one of the most brilliant teachers of the Bible for many, many years. Winky would, uh, read five to seven books a week and did so for well over 50 years. And so this, like this book, it's, it says compiled by Winky Prattney as opposed to written by because what he does is he would grab a bunch of other people's material and distill it down in various subject matter. And so that's why one of the reasons I really appreciate him is because you read Winky, you've read a lot of people. Uh, I so love Winky. I met him back in 1995 and he was, uh, he was the kind of guy you'd meet him, start asking him questions, say, you got a floppy drive? I know I'm dating myself. Yeah, I have one. And he'd download a bunch of teaching on it. He was just a man that gave it away. Uh, back in, I don't know what year it was, it was probably 96, 97, my wife actually reached out to him and said, uh, would you be willing to call my husband on Christmas Day? It would be such a Christmas gift to him. And uh, lo and behold, the, the phone rang, and uh, my wife said, it's for you. I, I well, hello, David. It's, you know, I, okay, anytime I try to do a, an accent, I'll end up Speedy Gonzalez within three, three seconds. So uh, he w- it was Winky Prattney. I was so stunned, I really never asked him the questions I wanted to ask him. But he's a tremendous, tremendous writer and tremendously insightful. And uh, he made a statement when I met him in 1995. And many of you have heard me share this statement before. And I believe it's really a helpful analogy for Christian growth, but also reveals the necessity of us staying teachable, staying pliable. Bill Johnson has a wonderful statement. He says, what you know can keep you from what you need to know. And that's true. That doesn't negate the legitimacy of what he's already shown you. It's just you've got to hold it carefully because the truth that you have may not be the whole truth. And so we've always got to take the truth we've been given and take it and root it back in the word of God. We've got to root it back into the whole counsels of God. A couple weeks ago we were talking about the whole thing of uh, uh, germination and how uh, in germination the seed, the first phase is that seed begins to feed on those internal food sources. And so the first time you see something in the word and God really begins to speak on you, that thing becomes everything to you. You'll run into this with teachers. In their quiet time, God's speaking to, to them about something. Maybe it's about finances. And you come up to them and ask them, I'm having trouble in my marriage, what should I do? And they want to talk to you about finances. This will be your cure. Because to them, for the moment, that is everything. But over time, they have to begin to... Fit that in with the overall theology of Scripture, or they become imbalanced. 
And so there's a stage at which a seed will stop eating on the, the internal food sources and will have to begin to pull on its environment. And it's called photosynthesis. Photo being light and synthesis with idea. Synthesis. Photosynthesis is the idea is you're going to tie what you've been given in with all the other ideas that you have so you become balanced in your theology. And so there's a need for that. Now here's the quote that Winky Prattney made. He said this. He said, walking is a, some of you know where I'm going. You've heard me say this before. Walking is a perpetual state of imbalance. The only time you're balanced is when you're standing still. Now think of that spiritually. We see that with little babies. They take a couple steps and they're kind of staggering. They'll stagger over and then they'll take another one. I saw the cute little guy down here with his ball cap on t- this morning and he was doing a good job. He didn't fall over. He's learning to, to walk. It's, you know, it's, he's a little, uh, little imbalanced, but he's, he's getting there. He learns to swing himself over. Uh, when a child first begins to walk, he will take a step, and then tumble over. And we as parents think he's the most brilliant child. He fell better than any kid ever le- that has ever lived. But he's learning to walk with grace. And, and as adults, we learn to do that. And what we do is we, uh, we swing to one side and then the other. And the only time we're really balanced is when we're standing still. The same is true theologically, maturity-wise, in our Christian walk. God will emphasize different things to you to grow you up. But there comes a point in which you have to have a counterbalance or you will fall over. And with that picture in mind, I want us to talk this morning about the concept of God's character and really the two primary uh, facets of his character. You're going to approach it this way. We have the Bible. The Bible is the written form of God's character. It really is. God's character emanates from the book. Jesus is the word of God. He's the living, breathing manifestation of God. When we, in John chapter one, it says, and in the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among them. The word that is translated, word, is logos. It's where we get the idea of logic. It's he is God's grand idea. He was God, he is God, and then he became flesh and dwelt among us. He was God's grand idea, and he expresses God's idea. Hebrews chapter 1, it says, in times past, God has spoken to us through prophets and other men, but now he speaks to us by his word. Not through his word, but by his word. And it's speaking of Jesus. He's speaking to us by his son is really what it says. But he's, it's saying that he is the word of the Lord. And so if you want to know what God's like, look at Jesus. He is the word of the Lord. But he's also given us graciously an objective book. Not this one. I'm, I'm using this as an illustration. I don't think Winky is infallible. Okay, But God gives us a book that is the objective, printed expression of his character. He graciously gave us that so we can root our theology or our belief system in the word of God. Now when I talk about theology, some of you are like, yeah, pastor, I'm not really into theology. Yeah, you are. You have an idea of God, and that's what theology is. 
The danger is, is when you say, I'm not into theology, you're saying, I'm just not into being intentionally correct in my theology. I just kind of let it happen. And so we need to be intentionally correct because your view of God will determine how you relate with him and will determine where you end up. Your belief determines your behavior. And if you want to tweak your behavior, if you're having problems in your behavior, you need to go back and attend to your believing because your believing is the taproot of all your behaving. And so we have to understand God. And so our walk with God is a lifelong process where he is unveiling himself to us. We're learning about him, and the more we learn about him, the better we can relate with him. And so we've got to be intentional about building our theology. I think one of the most important things a believer can do is continually have questions they're bringing to the Lord and to other men and women of God that are are a little farther down the road from them, and they're always having them anchored in the word. They're bringing these questions before the Lord and asking the Lord, God, what does this mean? How does this work? How does this fit? What does this verse mean? How does it fit with this other one? You're building out your theology because like it or not, you have a theology. Everybody has a theology, but not everybody has a good theology. And your theology will determine your behavior. Orthodoxy results in orthopraxy. Good believing determines it will result in good behavior. And so the way that God grows us up is he's continually revealing himself to us. First Peter says this, grace and peace be unto you, through your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's your theology. He reveals something of himself, and grace, the avenue of grace, is the knowledge of God coming to you. Because the truth is what's going to set you free. You can have an encounter with God, and hey, I'm all about that. Encounters with God are amazing things. But if your encounters don't change your believing, then all you have is a story of a touch that, hasn't really affected your life. And so these encounters need to be embedded in the scripture. We need to root them in the scripture and be able to understand. You cannot give away what you don't understand. And so we need to be rooted in theology. We need to be rooted in a good biblical theology. And we need to have the Lord reveal himself. Now, so when we say the Bible is the expression, the objective expression of God's nature, Let me just pause there. You can spend time reading the Bible and encounter his character, his nature. There has been plenty of times where I've been, been, my heart's hurting, I'm, I'm in distress, and I'll get and I'll just read the word, and it's like a peace will settle over me, and it's like God ministers to me, it's like I encounter him, and there have even been times where I've like encountered God in his, in his word, and it's, this peace comes on me, and I feel settled, I feel like God has spoken to me, but if you were to say, what did he say in those passages? I really don't know. I don't understand them yet. But something's begun as I've engaged with them. And I'm going to go deeper. And when that happens, it's a sign that there's some nuggets. You've struck a vein that you need to be mining out and begin to unpack. And God is going to take you on a journey of revelation. And I said this the other night, and I said it a couple weeks ago, and I want to reiterate this. The people that I know that are truly transformed and changed the people that I know that truly know their God, 
that there's a stability and a depth to their relationship, are people of the word, that they have begun to encounter him in his word, and that word becomes a part of their life. They know the book. And so we need to be people of the word. You can know the book and not know him, but you can't know him and not know the book. Let me say it again. You can know the book and not know him, but you can't know him and not know his book because you're encountering him in the book and there will be a hunger that just stirs up in your heart to mine out those truths and to, to, to understand. Curiosity is the, uh, you, curiosity or spiritual hunger, spiritual appetite, desiring to know, those are signs of a healthy spiritual life. When people lose their appetite, there's something wrong. They need attention. And we need an appetite for the word. So the book is, you can look at the Bible and you notice that it's divided into two covenants. There's the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. There's the Old Testament and the New Testament. The God, when people read the Old Testament, they, they see a God that sometimes people say, I don't recognize the God of the Old Testament in the New Testament. So much so that some unbelieving scholars will tell, yeah, that there, there was this Jewish, uh, this Jewish idea of what God was and, and then the apostles brought a new revelation and really these two have nothing to do with each other. That's faulty theology. The God of the Old Testament is the God in whose presence we are invited to come boldly in the New Testament. And the blood of Jesus welcomes us in. But you'll never fully appreciate the invitation of the New Testament without seeing who he was in the Old Testament. And frankly, still is. It's not like God changed. The covenants didn't change God. They changed us, okay? They changed the ground rules for us to approach him. But the God of the Old Testament is the God in whose presence we're invited. I have a bit of a concern for the American church. And it just may be the fruit of a number of possibly centuries ago. I don't know how long we've been doing this, but I think it's erroneous to do so. In printing what we call just a New Testament. We need to be printing the Bible. Why are we just giving out the New Testament? Because it will give an erroneous view of who God really is. There's an old saying that what God is in the old concealed is in the new revealed. And there's truth to that. But there's, and, but you, so you can also find revelation of the New Testament in the Old Testament. It's a beautiful tapestry of revelation. And too often people ignore the Old Testament and lose out on a perspective of God that we deeply, deeply need. So, painting with a really wide brush, what we see is in the Old Testament we see God's justice. The justice of God. The standard of heaven. The holiness of God. And in the New Testament, we see the mercy of God and the provision to enter in boldly into the presence of this just, holy God. Not just to enter with fear and trembling, trembling, and there are times for that, and we'll get to that, but also to enter boldly before the throne of grace. 
And so when we see who he is in the Old Testament, we appreciate much deeper the New Testament invitation. And there are elements of God's nature in the old that we must realize. And that brings us to something. We're not going to get too deep into this, but we need to realize that Old Testament law, the way we interact with the law, the way we respond to it is very, very important. And I think there's a cavalier, even a disrespectful way in which people address the law of God. I'll hear people talk about things, and and let me just say, this also applies to you. If you don't believe in the gifts of the Spirit, and that's what you believe the Scriptures teach, then I respect the fact that you hold to your interpretation, even though you're wrong. And I respect the fact that you won't just accept my word for it. You're going to let God be true and every man a liar. I respect that. And I would love to sit down and engage you and just have a discussion and show you why I believe what I believe. That's great. But what becomes dangerous is when a cessationist begins to mock things like tongues. Because God is the author of tongues. Whether you believe they're for today or not, God was the one that instituted this, I admit with you, strange gift. But this strange New Testament gift of tongues, actually in the New Testament, is compared to another strange thing in the Old Testament, circumcision. If that ain't strange, okay? And so just be careful. I say it with all due respect, Lord. It's just, those are, those are strange things. But I'm not the judge, he is. I don't sit in judgment on his word, his word sits in judgment on me, and I just humbly say, God, I don't understand fully that one. I've got some insight on that, but I don't fully understand why that was necessary. But Lord, you're smarter than me. I humbly bow and bend my neck before you. And we've got to be very careful. And there are things in the Old Testament that people will mock and cavalierly just cast off. And there's, this is, let me just kind of go on a little detour. Remember I taught a couple weeks ago that rabbit trails are scriptural according to Ephesians 3? I'm now going to model that because I don't want us just to teach things. I want us to model those things, okay? So I'm going to go on a rabbit trail, okay? There's really three ways in which you can deal with Old Testament law. There are people who say, I'm gonna, I, I just, I dismiss it. That's not for today. That has nothing to do with us. Uh, I don't even need an Old Testament. I just need the New Testament. That is, that has nothing to do with me. There's other people that bind us to that and say that we still, we're still bound to the law. We need to obey the law of God. We need to, you know, we need to honor the Sabbath and we need to, uh, you know, the, 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 the ceremonial laws and all those things. And there are, there are Christians in this region who refer to themselves as Messianic Christians. I know Messianic Jews that don't believe that. They're Jewish by birth, but there are people that want to bind themselves to law. And let me just say, Paul already dealt with that in Galatians. Okay. You're not made righteous by observing the law. The law was the shadow, but we have the reality. But those two polarized views are not the only options. The middle ground, notice I explained my view as the middle ground. (laughs) A little bias there. The middle ground is that we recognize that even though there's not obligation, uh, obligation over here, and there's, we're not going to relegate it to hip history, because I'm, I'm going to teach, so I'm going to make them rhyme. It's not relegation or obligation, it's revelation. Okay, the, the Old Testament holds tremendous revelation for you and I. There are things I'm no longer obligated to, but I don't discard them, because there's a reason God said that it, 
in the first place. And because of the principle of design, I can study what he said and and how the world works. God wants to give us the secrets to how this thing called the universe, the cosmos, works. And we get that from the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. So there are things that we discover that although it's not a matter of salvation, it does absolutely become a matter of living in blessing or living with the consequences of violating what God revealed. Things like the Sabbath. We're not obligated to the Sabbath on a Saturday. But I'm telling you, you better have a day of rest. Because your body was not designed to run hard for seven days in a row and then just start all over again. There's the principle of Sabbath. So these revelations from the Old Testament are principles to help us interact with the world that God created. And it's very important. And so be careful how you handle the Old Testament. That we don't just discard it. Ah, it's not for today. Whoa, wait a minute. It's the Word of God. So what is its purpose in this day and age? It holds revelation, secrets to how life works. So we need to study the Old Testament as well. So we have this thing, the Old Testament, the New Testament, the justice and the mercy of God. And out of those two great revelations, and again, I'm painting with a wide brush because you can find mercy in the old and justice in the new. Matter of fact, what crucified his son was the justice of God so that you and I could experience mercy. Ananias and Sapphira stepped into the judgment of God. What's going on there? Another rabbit trail. Let me just make this comment. In an hour of outpouring, the consequences of behavior rise. You remember when God told the children of Israel, I can't go with you lest I kill you? He told Moses, I'm not going with you. I'll have to kill him." And Moses said, God, we don't want to go without you. So God says, okay, I'll go. And some people died. They were living in a time of extreme revelation. A cloud by day I mean, and fire by night. I mean, we're talking some extreme revelation. The clearer the presentation of truth, the greater the response that is required of men. And in hours of visitation, that's the principle God was operating by. He was saying, if I, if I dwell with you, my manifest presence in that way. So that act of discipline was also an act of mercy. He withdrew his presence. And God still operates that way. That's why revival always begins with repentance. Because it's the hearts that are dealing with themselves that can actually steward his presence. And God loves us enough not to show up to a bunch of rebellious people who will end up suffering bad consequences from the visitation. Does that make sense? Remember, when I was 16 years old, my father and I were at odds with each other. I thought I could do anything I wanted. <laughs> and he disagreed. And so he invited me to leave home with a clenched fist. I got up and he invited me again with a clenched fist. Knocked me down twice, and the next morning told me, you no longer live here. 
because my rebellion had reached a point that we could no longer live in the same house without there having to be extreme conflict where he would have to dominate me. <laughs> and that was a good father. Some of you say, whoa, that's a little extreme. No, I was extreme. And uh, my dad was being a good dad. I needed to suffer the consequences of my behavior because if I were to able to experience the blessings of his provision while continuing in rebellion, I would have never changed. If the prodigal son's father would have given him a MasterCard, he'd have never come home. And so a loving father will cut that off. So we have justice, mercy, Old Testament, New Testament. And here's the beautiful thing. The way that God wired us as believers, as human beings, not just believers, that if we get a proper revelation of who he is, it will birth with us, within us, a, a reciprocal response of what is necessary to have a relationship with him. And we see this tension in the New Testament revealed, this tension between fear and love, both of which are necessary for you to have a healthy relationship with God. The New Testament, the Old Testament talks about loving God, having the fear of the Lord, but we don't leave off the, the fear of the Lord in the Old Testament. The fear of God is also a New Testament idea. We see it throughout Scripture. In fact, these principles show up together in some passages, sometimes even in the same verse. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 9. Speaking of Jesus, it says that because he loved righteousness and hated wickedness, the Lord anointed him with the oil of joy. The hatred of evil is the fear of the Lord, Scripture says in Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. And it's also the beginning of what? Wisdom. It's the beginning. You cannot truly operate in wisdom. You can be a very intelligent person. You know, there's some very intelligent people that have some really crazy ideas that are shipwrecking their lives. They have brilliant IQs. But their view is skewed and it's destroying their life. Wisdom is not intelligence. Wisdom is the, the, the ability to see life through a moral lens and, and to connect the dots between behavior and consequences and to adjust your behavior accordingly. The fear of the Lord is looking at life through the lens, understanding that there is a God in heaven, the judge of all the earth. Remember when Abraham prayed, he said, will not the judge of all the earth do justly? It was a rhetorical question, but he was leveraging that with the Lord, crying out to God, God, you as the judge of all the earth, you'll do justly. The fear of the Lord is rooted in that idea. The fear of the Lord is the justice of God that balances the scales of human behavior continually. And when you really believe that is happening, you will adjust your behavior. For me, salvation began with a slow dawning of the fear of the Lord on my life. I was living on the streets, I was a homeless alcoholic, and I would steal food just to get by, and I, ha I worked two jobs when I was homeless. Uh, right at the end, I got fired from both of them. My, my, my boss came to me and said, Dave, we love you, you do a good work, but we can't, we can't keep you employed. It's breaking our hearts to see what you're doing to your life, and we can't partake in this. We're, we're paying you money, and you're using it to destroy your life. God wasn't even a believer. Matter of fact, he used to get me drunk, and then he told me that. But I'd go out and steal food, 
And I remember reaching for a Twinkie because I was a health nut. I wanted to eat healthy. I went and I was in a gas station. I looked around. I knew I wasn't where the cameras could see. I was going to grab a Twinkie, put it in my coat. And the thought came in my mind, you're going to pay with a Twinkie's worth of flesh if you take that. What a man reap, sows he will reap. And I thought, it ain't worth it. And I left there with no food. Now that is not the way I had been thinking for a number of years. But it was the dawning of the fear of the Lord because for, I, I began to be aware that there's a God in heaven that is watching and balancing the scales. And he loves me enough. I'm telling you, a God who doesn't provide consequences for poor behavior does not love you. The Lord disciplines those he loves, it says. When God loves you, he provides those consequences for your behavior to turn you from the ultimate consequence of eternity without him. And so God was providing that. So really, the fear of the Lord is rooted in three distinct characteristics of God. Number one, his holiness. That God is absolutely holy. He is intolerant of evil. The corruption in his his creation, he cannot tolerate it because he sees its destructive force. And so God is holy. He has a standard by which he judges and weighs everything. Number two, God is just. He's not only intolerant in the sense that he distances himself from it, he's just so he involves himself in it and he provides consequences to turn people. So when you realize God is holy, he has a standard, he is just, he really does care, and he's going to be involved. God is, God is not some dis, uh, uh, distant deity that's uninvolved in life. He is immediately involved. The theologians call it the eminency. He's transcendent. He's above us, but he's eminent. He's involved all around us. And when you fail to realize that, you, your heart is turned towards evil. I want to say it's Ecclesiastes, uh, I want to say eight, where it says, when the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, the heart of the people are continually turned towards evil. Think about that. Think about that in our civil government and our, the state of our nation right now. Think of that spiritually. Think of that with your children. And think of that with your own life in God. When we don't see consequences, we buy into the lie, I got away with it. And so the fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. Why? Because when I fear him, I realize God is holy God is just, and there's a third component, that God is omnipotent or all-powerful. He has the resources to do about my behavior anything he wants. He can, he can do whatever he wants. And when I live within the light of that, I adjust my behavior. I, I, I don't live as though I can get away with it. The fear of the Lord begins to dawn upon us. And that is an essential element to the Christian life. I look at the fear of the Lord as the safety net under the trapeze of truth. I'm learning to walk with Jesus. Every now and then, a backflip. Wow, that's cool. I'm going to do a triple. And so the fear of the Lord is what keeps me in line. Or you could say it's the backstop as you're learning to play the game uh, you know, as you're learning to operate in this thing, there's something, the backdrop that keeps me from getting out of hand. 
Let me give you another scripture that, that talks about both of these principles. It'll make this point better. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it says, uh, Paul's talking about we have the ministry of reconciliation. And he gives the two motivations for his ministry in this passage. He says, the love of Christ constrains me. So Paul says, there's the love of God. I see his love for me. I, and it, 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 the love of Christ constrains me. And I'm telling people, you got to get saved. I'm telling people, get right with God. Be reconciled to God. And it's the love of God flowing through me. Two verses later, he says, knowing the fear of the Lord, I persuade men. There's the other, the balance in his life. The other motivation for Paul was Paul knew God was just, God was holy, and every one of us will stand before him someday to give an account for our life. And knowing that, living in that fear, it motivated him in his ministry to persuade men. I would propose to you that that applies to more than evangelism. It is the foundation of our Christian life. Do you know the first command that God gave to Israel coming out of the promised land? You would think it's love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul, and strength. We know that's the greatest command. Jesus himself validated that. It is the greatest of command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. But the first command was to fear him. These twin attributes, or these twin responses rather, are responses to the twin sides of his character. One is foundational, the fear of the Lord, and one is the, 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 the climax, the pinnacle of your walk. The greatest of these is love. That's where God, he wants us to live from love. But when your love is running weak, the fear of the Lord will keep you in line. And both are important. I love my dad. Growing up, my dad was my hero. But I also feared my father. And it was a healthy fear. I love my wife. But I would be afraid to wrong her in certain ways. <laughs> a good relationship, you fear violating that relationship if you're in a healthy relationship. If you're in a relationship with somebody that you could do anything and you don't fear it hurting the relationship, uh, call Laura. Laura, raise your hand. I want to We'll set up a counseling appointment because you are headed for a train wreck, okay? That is a very dysfunctional relationship. Relationships are give and take, and, and so there has to be honor on both sides. And it's, it's the fear of violating that that also keeps us aligned. Love keeps me connected to God, but also the fear of the Lord keeps me connected to God. And both of those are valid motivations. Paul operated in them. And we need the love of God and we need the fear of God both in our life. The two great heresies of the New Testament that Paul would deal with were known as legalism. We, we know that, legalism. Uh, legalism is thinking that you have to earn God's love or earn your salvation by good works. That works Will, will, that once you're, you're up to a certain level in your works, then you can have faith to believe, okay, I've been good enough and God will accept me. That's legalism. And there's nuances of that we, can't, we don't have time to get into. The other great heresy of the New Testament was known as licentiousness. 
Licentiousness is what it means, what, what it sounds like, a license to sin. Licentiousness says you can act any way you want and you're, you're right with God because, hey, you're saved by grace. And if you're, if you're not saved by works, if you're not made right by works, then you can't be made wrong by works. If you didn't earn the entrance into this relationship, you can't unearn the exit. And that's faulty reasoning. Because this is a relationship. And there's a lack of the fear of the Lord. There's people, I'll meet people and they're living, they'll, they'll worship Jesus, they'll raise their hands, they'll speak in tongues, they'll come to church, and they live in open sin. And they know it. And when you talk to them, I, 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 it never fails to shock me when I see people knowingly living contrary to the word of God, and I'll go to them thinking, man, do they not understand? And they'll say, yeah, I, yeah, God's dealing with me on it, but this has been going on for three years. Yeah, but don't you have any sin? As if my imperfection justifies their sin. And they're looking for an excuse but the real problem is a deeper theological problem. There is no fear of the Lord. And these twin heresies of the New Testament are corrected, one and the other, by an accurate picture of who he is. The God of the Old Testament that is a burning fire. The God who judged sin and ground open up and his own people fell into it because of rebellion. That is the God who Jesus purchased my entrance and made me holy so I could come in boldly before the throne of grace. I come in by grace, but the same grace teaches me to say no to ungodliness is what the New Testament says. And don't tell me you're, you're living under grace if you're not letting the grace of God teach you to say no to ungodliness. I'm not saying you're, you have to be perfect now, but if you're, if you're comfortable and not crying out and saying, God, I see these things in my life and I don't want them. I want deliverance. I want, if, if there's not a, a troubled, a, a, a trembling in your spirit that says, God, I don't want to live this way. I want to live in relationship with you. I'm not going to cavalierly violate this relationship and think you're okay with that. That is a violation of relationship. You would, again, if you have a functional marriage, you would never do that to your spouse. Be unfaithful and just think, well, you know, they're committed. They said they'll be with me till the end of, you know, till death do us part. Well, they may speed that date up. You know, you keep doing that. <laughs> it's a violation of relationship. The fear of the Lord is a valid thing in the New Testament. It says, and I want to say it's Acts chapter 9. It says, the church grew in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. We see those two things happening in their life. And I'm telling you, there are seasons in the church down through history, seasons in your personal life where God will be emphasizing one or the other. And my caution is this. Listen, when God begins to emphasize a new thing, it may not be brand new, but it's, he's bringing back some old truths that bring attention to the thing that you're, you be, he's been ministering to you now. Don't let what you know keep you from what you need to know. Don't 
dig down and say, I'm going to be immune to that scripture because this is the one he spoke to me. Tie it into the full counsel of God's word. Because what happens is people, they see a revelation and they hold to it. And rather than making progress, at first they start to move forward, but eventually they fall over. And they lay in their error. And it can cost them, at least in their maturity and their effectiveness. And so we need to be very careful. Why am I talking about all this? Because I truly believe that there is a correction coming to planet Earth. I believe there's a correction coming to the church. And it's not to negate the, what, what this last move of God, these last 25, going on 30 years now, this last move of God has really established the love of God in the heart of the believer. There's been a, we've heard a lot of teaching on the baptism of love, the spirit of adoption, all these wonderful teachings, your identity and knowing him as your father, climbing up in the lap of Papa God, all that stuff, I believe that stuff. But not to the negation of we have to come before him with fear and trembling. There's a beautiful verse in Isaiah that stands true today. What, God didn't negate the old covenant. We relate with it differently in the new covenant, but he didn't negate it. It still holds rich truths. And it says, I want to say it's Isaiah 61. It says, who is the man that I esteem? Stop there. Think about this. The creator of the universe creates these tiny little humanoids and there's a certain characteristic that God looks at and says, whoa, I, the word is esteem that. If I, if I didn't have an ear mic, it'd be a mic drop. I'd drop it. That, that's amazing. There's something that God will esteem in a human being. And I hope that awakens something within you that says, I want to be that person. That when God looks across the congregation, looks across the face of the earth, he's looking for one whom, whom he can esteem. And when I hear that, I want to know, what is that thing? What can I aspire to that will cause God to esteem me? And what does he say? The one who trembles at my word. That when you read the word, there's a holiness to it that you, you read that and it causes you to shudder. There are times when I'll read things and I'll, it's just involuntary. It's like my body, whoo, man. And you don't have to be like me and have it, you know, a physical, but there needs to be something within you that there's a shuddering inside of you that, Lord, this is your truth. And I can see I'm not living up to the standard. Or I didn't understand that truth and I can see where my life is off. Or I didn't have this revelation. I don't even know what this means. But Lord, bring me into it. There needs to be something within us that trembles at his word. And I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm on the front end, I'm trying to prepare us as a people for, for what I feel is the next move of God. There is the fear of the Lord. It says in Proverbs chapter 1, it talks about choosing the fear of the Lord. God's rebuking people who didn't choose the fear of the Lord. So the, the fear of the Lord is something we actually choose. We make a decision. Oh, I am going to choose that. I'm in. It starts with a surrendered will, not a convinced mind. 
I say, okay, hey, that's scriptural. I'm in, Lord, I choose that. Proverbs chapter two talks about understanding the fear of the Lord. So the fear of the Lord is a principle you can begin to understand. Again, and it's rooted in a revelation of those three elements of his character. God is holy, he is just, and he is powerful. God is not some senile grandfather that's hard of hearing and hard of seeing. and he, he, He's long white beard and kind of sits on the rocking chair on the porch of heaven. And, and uh, we're, we're misbehaving, but grandpa's so old he can't hear us. <laughs> but he'll still provide for us. We can get up in his lap and talk to him, but when we're five feet away, he doesn't see or hear. <laughs> that's, that's not Christianity. Okay? God, God sees and hears. There, I went to a church in Missouri. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to land it in two minutes, honest. I went, this is a holiday weekend. Just give, me, give me two extra minutes. The, uh, the, uh, I went to a church in St. Louis that I heard was in full-blown revival. So I went there when I was living down in that area. And uh, went in, it was an old-time Pentecostal church. And the presence of God hung thick in the air. It was an amazing place. It was real old-fashioned in the way that they did things. But during the altar time, I realized the secret of that move. They would sing this song over and over again where a little old lady pounded the piano. Watching you, watching you. There's an all-seeing eye watching you. And that's how they sang it too, with that kind of twang. Watching you, watching you. There's an all-seeing eye watching you. That will bring both comfort. His eye is on the sparrow. He's watching me. But it'll also bring correction. He's watching me. Some of you are more concerned what others think than what God thinks. And you would never do something when someone else is around, but you'll do it and you forget he's watching you. And you need the fear of the Lord. You need to understand it. You need to choose it. You need to walk in it. Now go ahead and stand so you know I'm going to quit. There's one other element of the fear of the Lord that's very important for us to realize. There's the, the fear of the Lord as a principle. We understand and we choose. But there's also the spirit of the fear of the Lord. Scripture talks about I want to say it's Isaiah 9. The spirit of the fear of the Lord. What is that? This is academic. It's something we believe. It's something we study. We shape our mind and it will shape our behavior. We begin to root ourselves in this thing. It's something that we pursue. It's a process. We get a a deeper grasp of it and it will transform how we act. It's something that we have to buy into and surrender to. The spirit of the fear of the Lord, something totally different. It has the same effect, but it's immediate. It comes in, it's environmental, it's atmospheric. And when that thing lands, even unbelievers tremble. It is external to us, and people who don't even believe in him suddenly know they're in his presence. That level of the fear of the Lord, when it comes in as the spirit of the Lord, is a tremendous gift to the body of Christ. But I've, how many of you have ever been in a situation, a service where to some degree that's entered into the room? There have been times I've been in services where my face was in the carpet. I was afraid to look up lest I die. His whole, man, the God that I looked at is Papa God, just like John the Revelator. 
at the Last Supper, John's laid, he's laid on Jesus' chest. I don't know about you guys, that's a little awkward to me. That's some intimacy with another man. John is laying on Jesus' chest, because they're reclining, and John just scoots over there, and they're talking, and he's laid on his chest. That, that's a beautiful, intimate relationship. But when that same Jesus shows up in the book of Revelation, it's an entirely different experience. And it's the same Jesus. And I'm here telling you that we all need both experiences. We need them both in our life. Some of you, you need a revelation of the love of God. Some of you, you need a revelation of the fear of the Lord. And God loves you and wants to give you both so you'll live a balanced life. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you, Lord, for everyone that's standing here this morning. Lord, we thank you for everything you've done this week in this house. But Lord, we're asking, give us a revelation of you. Lord, we want to walk in your fear and love. We want to see you for who you are. And Lord, we ask that you would bring correction to our heart in the areas where we need it. If you need to get right with the Lord this morning, it might be that you've never surrendered to Jesus. It might be something you've done before and you've, you're wondering. Or there, there might just be something in your heart you're saying, man, pastor, I need to pray. I'm opening the altars this morning. If you need to get right with the Lord, if you need to surrender to Jesus, I want you to raise your hand right now. You're saying, I, I need to get things right. I need to get saved. Just raise your hand. I, I want to make sure I see your hand this morning. You're saying, I need to get right. God brought you here. This is the beginning of the rest of your life. God wants to give you a new start, but it takes repentance. You know, both faith and repentance, the two requirements of salvation, are both a response to those sides of God's character. If you need to get right, just wave at me. I don't want to just assume that everybody's right in this room. All right, I see your hand up there. I'm gonna, I'm gonna open the altars. I'm gonna invite you to come if you need to, to pray, if you just need to get right with God. If you, need, if you need special prayer, I'm gonna ask the ministry team to come forward at this time. And uh, if, if, you need, if you need specific prayer about specific things, I want you to come. I'm gonna ask that, the individual that raised their hand up in the balcony, just come down and we wanna pray with you this morning. And uh, thank you for responding this morning. That's a brave thing, hallelujah. Uh, Father, we thank you. God, I ask that you just bless each of these. Lord, take your word, establish it, Lord. And Father, I ask in the coming days that you'd make us, Lord, a church that walks with you, Lord, that we will tip in the direction you're moving. Lord, that we will move with you and let us continually move forward. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give.